Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. Alrighty, mate. Welcome along to episode 71 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. It's so good to have you here. Nick Taylor, how are you this week? I am good, thank you, Mr. Graham. I am good. I'm good. We saw shoulder, but that's, you know, that's all right. I'm embracing my T-shirt and hardening up. What did you do to your shoulder? I took my bike off my roof of my car, and it just tweaked something and just a wee bit niggly. But that's an officially an old man injury. It is, eh? Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it's, it just catches me on the bike. It's kind of annoying. Uh, but seeking physio, and I'm doing my rehab exercises, and I'm actually noticing some um, progression in, in pain reduction by doing my exercises. So if I've ever been a convert to doing physio exercises, I am now converted. Shit, isn't it funny how that works, though, that you do what the physio says and it actually works? Yeah. <laughs> I always love the saying, if uh, if at first, what is it? Uh, if it doesn't work, try doing what your coach told you to do in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Although if everyone did what they were told in the first place by physios and doctors, etc., then they'd probably put themselves out of jobs. Oh, exactly right. That is what keeps yeah. people going back, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Yes, nice. What I wanted to start on is in episode 69, we talked generally around the hierarchy of information or the hierarchy of evidence, and I got a couple of comments around that. Um, a couple of people saying, well, what does this actually mean? Does it mean that opinion and personal experience is worthless? So if you remember back to the pyramid, down the bottom, the lowest level of information the lowest quality of information is around that uh, people's opinions um, blog posts uh, personal experience that sort of thing and it doesn't mean that this information that you get from people is worthless it just means that you have to be careful about who you're getting these opinions from or these this experience from because those people might just be basing it on what they have experienced. And people experience things in different ways, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on in a couple of the topics that we've got. But what works for one person doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work for the, for the other people as well. So down at this low level is where we consume most of our information, especially these days. Uh, we're browsing around online. Anyone can have a website. Anyone can have a blog. Anyone can make YouTube videos, podcasts. So there's a lot of information down at this bottom level that we're consuming. And I think the biggest thing that we need to be aware of or need to be informed around is do we trust the people or that person that we're getting that information from? Are they seeking that information from higher up the food chain, so to speak, and then trying to disseminate it to the to, to the people, so to speak. And I guess that's what the Exponential Performance Podcast is in a nutshell, is trying to take that higher level information around training, around nutrition, around health and fitness in general, and putting it in a, in a way that is, one, able to be applied in the real world. Because, yeah, all of the information up the top that comes out of those meta-analysis around those uh, randomized control trials. It's all high-quality information, but it's not 
uh, applied real world information and and that's the beauty of coaching um, is taking that theory and applying it to, to different people as well so if you haven't had uh uh, listen to that episode, episode 69, and you have no idea what I'm talking about at the moment, go back and check out um, that episode 69 where we talk about the hierarchy of information or the hierarchy of evidence. All right, we're going to jump into a new series for this episode, and it's going to be around using training peaks. So let's jump into that. So training peaks, if you don't know what training peaks is, here's a little bit of a rundown, it's a, it's an online, I don't know, is it a software, is that a thing, if it's online is it a software, or is that just when you load it onto your computer that's software? I think it's a platform, online platform. Online platform, yeah, so it's like an online platform where it, it sort of has two two hats, it's a, it's a training diary in that you can take all of your training data from your training device that you use, whether that be a heart rate monitor, a GPS, or a power meter, and you can upload that onto Training Peaks, and then it uses that information and, and spits out some numbers behind the scenes, what we'll talk about uh, soon. The other hat that Training Peaks uses is for coaches who are able then to plan and program program training sessions on the platform so that athletes on the other end can then use them. So it works as a training program and a training diary sort of side by side. This is the training software or the training platform um, that we use here at Exponential Performance Coaching. So if you're one of the Exponential Performance Athletes, you'll be very familiar with it, hopefully. Uh, And over these next few uh, episodes, what I wanted to focus on is just a little bit around how to get the most out of training peaks and then a little bit of the stuff that happens behind the scenes that often athletes don't see directly or if you're a self-coach athlete that has a, a paid membership for training peaks, you can then sort of hopefully educate yourself a little bit so you get more out of it. So training peaks, you can sign up for a, a free training peaks account Uh, This is the basic account. The basic account works uh, only in that training diary sort of format. You can only do things in the past, so to speak. You can only upload your training sessions. You can't plan things into the future. So if you're an athlete that's coached by Nick or I, you only need the basic account. We, as coaches, have a paid account that do everything behind the scenes. Now, when you go to upload your data, if you're only on a basic account, you can only see so many metrics or so many graphs um, on your dashboard that come out of it. So it sort of limits the amount you're able to do with it. But if you've got a coach, they're able to see everything uh, behind the scenes, behind the screens. They can see all the data. They have all the data management tools in there. So that's a little bit of an overview, and now I just want to think about what would be the number one thing that I would want an athlete that I was working with to know about Training Peaks to maximize the effectiveness of it. And the number one thing that I'd want them to know is to upload their data. So Training Peaks is only 
as good as the data that gets uploaded to it. So if you're really consistent with uploading your data, then we're able to develop a really big picture around your training. We're able to use all of that retrospective data to see how your body responds to training, how it responds to different training loads, and really use that to inform the future programming of your training. And we'll talk a little bit more about that data and what that looks like uh, behind the scenes in next episode. But uploading your data is crucial. It's almost a waste of time. It's almost a waste of time if you upload a couple of sessions here and there. Sure, we can still use it to prescribe your training, and you can have a look at the information from those training sessions. But when it comes to painting the bigger picture of your training and, and progression over time, it's almost a waste of time because if you're doing sessions but the data is not uploaded to Training Peaks, then there's going to be big, big holes in your data. And we'll talk about that more when we look at the performance management chart. So uploading the data is key. Behind the scenes... This is where Training Peaks really comes into its own. Behind the scenes, a lot of, let's call it, magic happens uh, and algorithms are run to organize the, the massive data that you upload. What I often see is people buying training devices such as GPS watch units or heart rate monitors or power meters thinking that the shelling out of that sort of five to $800 to buy this device is going to make them better. But actually it doesn't make them better at all because they're still doing their training and it's just there to inform you. What often happens is people just end up walking around with really expensive wristwatches or really expensive bike computers and they don't actually get anything out of them because the amount of data that you get from one single training session is huge. You know, when you're collecting um, heart rate, you know, every 30 seconds or every 20 seconds and speed every however long it does. And when you're getting a GPS reading, you know, up to every 10 or 15 seconds, it's a massive amount of, of data. And often people will start their watch, do this session, don't really pay attention to it during it. Uh, that's a, that's a, uh, a something for the, our intensity talks that we did a while ago. But then they'll stop it, they'll have a look at their averages potentially, chuck it on Strava, see if they got any KOMs, and that's all they ever do with their data. And that is a huge, huge waste. But when it comes to it, when heart rate monitors first came out, there was nothing you could really do with the data because there was just so much of it. How do you process it all? And this is where Training Peaks really sort of leads the field and how they manage all of the data over time and build a bigger picture around it. So once this data is uploaded, Training Peaks runs these different algorithms on the data and it builds a picture of your training. This is called our performance management chart. And in short, because we're going to dig into performance management chart in the next episode, but in short, a performance management chart is the sum of all of your training over the past, well, however long you've been uploading it. Every training session that you do adds into this performance management chart and tells us how hard you've been working, how much accumulated training load you've got, where your fatigue 
and freshness balances and from that we're able to monitor what you're up to so what we're going to do in the next episode is really dig into that performance management chart now that we've got a bit of an idea of what it's about but what i also wanted to do today is provide some alternatives to training peaks because i'm not here promoting training peaks in any form whatsoever um, I get nothing out of it. All I do is pay my monthly bill to them to um, manage and coach my athletes that are on there. But Strava is, uh, believe it or not, are quite a good alternative to training peaks. Most people are uploading their data to Strava. So if you get a Strava Summit account, which is their premium paid version, then essentially the same or similar at least, similar algorithms can run in the background to manage your data uh, and get a performance management chart and it'll become a little bit clearer hopefully um, when we talk about the performance management chart in the next episode about what it actually means and interestingly there's a little add-on that you can get or a plugin um, that takes all of your Strava data and then there's a program called Elevate and what it actually does is it provides all of the uh, all of the paid options of Strava and of Training Peaks, but for free, which is pretty pretty out there. Uh, and so you can get a performance management chart um, through this as well. Now, the only caveat I'd say around Strava and the Elevate platforms is that you don't really know exactly the algorithms that they're coming up with. Training Peaks is definitely leading the field in terms of their uh, training algorithms and how they categorize everything and, and move forward. There's been a lot of uh, extremely smart people that have put into the development of them, um, and these other ones sort of piggyback on the back of those. Um, and I don't know too much about the development of them, to be honest, but from what I've seen, they look really pretty solid anyway. So there's a little bit of an introduction to training peaks. It'd be interesting to know if you can comment uh, on whatever platform you're listening on is watch which one of these do you use? Do you use training peaks? Do you use Strava? Do you use Elevate? Or do you use something else to track your training and to log your training data? And no doubt you'll know if you're one of those people who don't upload their data that often. Uh, and if there's any athletes out there that I coach, I am talking to you. Make sure you upload your data. Because remember, if it's not on training peaks, it didn't actually happen. All right, and that's way more important than it not being on Strava. Nothing infuriates me more when I have a look on someone's training peaks account and it's all red. They haven't uploaded anything. And then I'll pop over to Strava and all of their sessions are on Strava. So they could go and spare the time to upload to train, uh, upload to Strava, but not to Training Peaks. Even though I can't do anything with it when it's on Strava, but I can when it's on Training Peaks. Moral of the story, team: upload your data. Nick. Yeah, I was gonna say, there's there's almost no excuse for not uploading it to Training Peaks. It was going to Strava because they just it's one more click when you <laughs> set something up. So only once you have to click it, but. Yes, you can't streamline the process, team, so it all happens yeah. automatically. Yeah, and that's the, I mean, it raises two, two, two points for me. One, even if you're an athlete and you're, you're wanting to do some sort of training diary without a coach, 
uh, I think training peaks is a fantastic option because so many coaches use it around the world that if you then ever decide to step across and be coached or mm. you go and get some, some sort of almost like a consultation by a coach, they can see what you've been up to. And so it makes that whole process of, of putting together a plan for you a lot easier because you can see what you've done in the past, what might have worked, what didn't work, what kind of sessions you like and, and so forth. Um, but also you raised a good point around actually knowing <clears throat> knowing what your, your smartwatch or your uh, GPS unit can actually do um, and how to use it in your session. So if you're being prescribed a pace running session, you know how to get pace on your watch. Or if you've got a, a power session on your bike, you've got your power zones actually linked from training picks across to your device. So you're actually, everything's talking together because you're spending mm-hmm. all this time uploading, paying for a coach, paying for the device um, to go out there and just not do any of it is a bit of a, a waste, really. Absolutely. And I like that uh, idea of even if you're not working with the coaches, uploading things for, for, the, for, the, for the future, potentially. And I often have athletes that I work with for a bit of a block and then they'll have a bit of a time where they're doing unstructured training just on their own. And then they'll come back and we'll do another training block leading into a race. And it's always really super helpful that you look back through their training and you can see the end of your program that I wrote and then ready for the start of this next one. And everything in between is just all of the sessions that they've been doing. And you can see exactly what they've been up to. Because you always ask that question, well, you know, what? how much training have you been doing? And everyone sort of writes down, you know, how much they think they've been doing. But when you actually look back, it, it can be quite different of what they actually have done. So if in doubt, upload your data. Exactly. Perfect. So we've got a listener Q&A today from Simon Walt. Simon, take it away. Hi, Matty. My name's Simon. I live in Sussex in the UK, but I'm from Australia. Been here a long time. Love the podcast. I uh, found it through first looking at Whiteboard Wednesdays. Often listen to it in my car. Uh, my commute is quite short, so I listen to it at like 1.25 speed, which just works for me. My question is, I've um, recently taken on a coach and my training for my Ironman sort of clocking up to sort of 15 plus hours a week. And I noticed my consumption of sports drinks like uh, electrolytes and gels and all these sort of stuff is uh, going through the roof. And I'm just wondering if this stuff's all that good for me and whether there are like natural products that I could take. And I know some people eat rice cakes and dates and all sorts of stuff. So I'm just wondering, like, if you wanted to take a natural approach to uh, ingesting carbohydrates before, whilst, and after your training, um, can you suggest some sort of um, things that I might try? Uh, Rice cakes is one example, but I'm sure there's a whole menu of uh, possible options out there. So uh, would you mind doing a little segment on natural nutrition for endurance athletes? That'd be fantastic. Cheers, mate. Bye. So uh, would you mind doing a little segment on natural nutrition for endurance athletes? That'd be fantastic. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. Cheers for your question, Simon. I'm going to throw this one over to Nick, who is our resident nutrition expert, to uh, fill us in on this one. Nick. Cool. Well, thank you, Simon, for your question. Um, and certainly, you know, getting up around that 15-hour mark of training for an Ironman is, is a decent week, uh, you know, sort of week in, week out, uh, especially heading into the, the winter of the UK. Um, don't actually know when your race might be happening, but I assume probably not in the next few months unless you're travelling abroad for it. So 
when we're looking at uh, home-made nutrition, uh, or yeah, home-made nutrition ideas for, for training, uh, there's an absolutely, not essential, but a, a real benefit to stepping down that pathway over and above your commercially available sports drinks and sports gels. Most sports drinks and sports gels aren't too bad for our health if we use them in the way they're intended to be used. You know, if you're cruising around your day-to-day at work and you're sipping on a gel, then you, you might have a few problems. Also, if you're downing Powerade or Gatorade uh, on the daily, uh, then also you're probably going to run into some problems just from a, an excess of sugar consumption, which is going to have some issues around your, you know, your insulin sensitivity and, and so forth, which we have talked about earlier on in the piece. But if they're used during sports performance, they're not too bad because we need those sugars. We need those fast-absorbing uh, carbohydrates to help us perform and help our, our muscles actually do the job of exercise. And with the sports drinks, we're getting the sodium and we're getting the ability to, to keep our blood volume going and keep our body functioning, not cramping and so forth. Uh, but when used out of context, they're not that great. However, they are very expensive products for you. So, Two things to keep in mind when you are looking to make your own sports drinks or sports uh, snacks is when adding fats and proteins into the mix, they will slow the absorption of the carbohydrate down. So if you're consuming a, a larger protein or, or fat intake as with your carbohydrate, that's going to have a greater chance of upsetting your GI tract. doesn't mean you can't eat them or you can't have some sort of fat or protein in your snack. Um, just means to, to limit the amount and, and keep it a little bit lower than you might if you were having a normal snack on a day-to-day basis. However, we can all tolerate different amounts of, again, fats and proteins within our exercise, and at different intensities will alter what we can absorb. Um, you know, we, we all know people that have gone through the last few years of knocking back peanut butter and cheese um, on all their trail rides or runs. However, they're often running at quite a low intensity when we look at that relative to their threshold. Um, and I like to compare that to the, the Olympic marathon runners, um, and not many of them, I don't think, would ever stop at that point and down some peanut butter as a, a way to keep their muscles going at a fast rate um, through, the, through the rest of the race. Uh, the other thing is to look around how much carbohydrate rich getting, and taking a, a commercially prepared available uh, sports bar or gel, we, we get a quantified amount of carbohydrate on the label to know what we're up to. So approximately around that 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour um, is what we're looking for. Um, interestingly enough, as a, a slight aside, um, now I've now started to sort of show that Tour de France athletes are consuming upwards of 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour um, through exercise. So it's always been thought that 60 grams is kind of that upper threshold. So there is obviously some benefit for, for higher, um, but keeping in mind too that if you're looking around those sort of this new information that a Tour de France athlete is competing back-to-back day after day for 20-odd for days. Um, so they, they need that higher intake. Uh, but also, <clears throat> you don't want to just throw in 60 grams of carbohydrate in one go um, because that will likely cause some sort of GI upset. Um, so being able to break it down into smaller serving sizes can be a real beneficial thing, sort of around 15 to 20 grams an hour. And that means you then have to think about, okay, I'm making my honey sandwich, how am I going to cut that into quarters, how am I going to store it, and so forth. So a couple of things to keep in mind. But Simon, there's really, got, I guess, two again two areas to your question. One's around the hydration side of things. And if you haven't listened to episode 51, I'd encourage you to go back and have a listen. And so in episode 51, we looked at 
sodium and its role within hydration. But that conventional sports drinks, um, you know, your Powerades, SOSs, uh, precision hydration, depending on what you're used to, um, generally are pretty good. They, they don't have a heap of sugar. Um, some of your Powerade, Gatorade equivalents do. Um, but a lot of sports drinks now are just coming out with the, the sodium levels. So they're really easy and really good. Also jumping back to the likes of episode 52 where we looked at sodium preloading and how that can be beneficial to, to preload up the night before in the morning of a, a long, long day session. Um, and that can reduce the amount that you actually have to take during a session. So therefore you could use something a little bit more um, home-based and then rely less on a, a sports product during. But also keep in mind too that, again, in, in the UK, you are heading into some colder and darker months, and your sweat rate will probably decrease on your outdoor sessions because of this. So you don't need to consume a huge amount of sodium if you're outside training, but if you then spend a lot of time inside training because of the weather, then you have to bear in mind that your sweat, uh, your sweat rate might go up, and so you're going to be get, getting rid of more sodium, so you're going to have to take on board more. So... I do encourage you to have a listen to those two episodes just to get a bit of an idea where your sweat rate and your sodium uh, concentration might be at. So when you are applying either a home-based option or a commercial-based option, um, you've, you've got that sodium level dialed in. Now, increasing your salt or table salt in your diet can be a, a really easy, natural approach to sodium. So there's nothing wrong with having table salt, and it's obviously talked quite heavily about from a health point of view, you know, don't want too high sodium intake and or salt intake. Um, and that's quite true. I mean, day to day, we, we don't need excessive amount. And people that are sweating and, and losing a lot of sodium don't need to take on board a whole heap of sodium. And also the problem is one teaspoon of, soda, uh, of salt sorry, contains 2,300 uh, 2, milligrams of sodium. Now, an average sweater might lose five to 800 milligrams of sodium per hour of exercise. So therefore you can have a whole bunch of, of relatively sedentary people consuming a, a truckload of sodium that they don't actually need and therefore that can have some really bad ramifications on their uh, blood pressure and, and so forth. But when we're using table salt to help make our own sports drinks, it can be a really easy thing to add in small amounts to get a, a decent sodium top up. The hardest part is you need to make sure it tastes good um, because sodium, ah, sorry, salt doesn't really taste that good all by itself. And then we're adding it to something that is normally in a prepared sachet for us that has been made to taste really good. So you need to kind of mix around with your flavors, mix around with your quantities a little bit. Um, you can bang a, uh, an amount of salt or amount of sodium into a, uh, a calculator online and that'll give you an approximate sort of weight volume that you're looking for to get maybe 500 milligrams of sodium or, or so forth. Um, I wouldn't suggest going much higher than sort of 500 milligrams of sodium per 500 milliliters of water. Um, and that's mainly based around taste, but also the absorption um, and letting the body actually absorb it. Uh, we, we need um, to keep it at a certain concentration. So I'd suggest for, for hydration for you, Simon, a, a great approach would be adding a few extra pinches of salt to your, to your daily meals, uh, mainly your dinner. Um, and day to day, that should be adequate enough to get a decent amount of sodium in. And then on your longer sessions, most likely on the weekend, um, you might use a, a commercial sports drink, no precision hydration, which I talked about back in 51, 52, is a UK-based company. So you probably have some really good access to that. Um, and that could be a way to kind of spread the cost a little bit. So you're only using 
the hydration uh, products in the weekend where you're probably doing your more key sessions. You might have a swim and a bike or a swim run in the one day. So your, your hydration needs to be on point. Um, and that way uh, you can use the commercial products in the weekend and some home-based alternatives just by adding some salt simply to your dinner um, during the week. And the good thing about sodium is you'll know whether you've had enough or you don't have enough. Um, so your, your body will respond. You won't have the energy and you won't, you know, you might run into some cramping issues if you don't have enough going on board. Um, and if you have too much, you'll know about it. A, it'll probably taste like crap. Um, and B, you'll run into issues around uh, sort of stomach cramping um, just by simply having so much sodium in your stomach. Um, and you can liken that to drinking a whole bunch of seawater and the need to actually drink pure water to kind of balance. Now, when we turn to the food side of things, um, I mean, there's so many different options here. Uh, it's not funny. I tr I've tried to put together a wee bit of a list for you, but you want to think pretty much the opposite to normal day-to-day -day nutrition. Um, in or sorry, nutrition for in training, white carbs are your friend. So white breads, white rices, etc. Um, you've already mentioned rice cakes is a good option. Um, consider what you might put in them. Avocado tends to work really well for people, uh, but that does contain a decent amount of fat and also a lot of fibre. Um, so don't go overboard on the avocado. Now, a little bit of soy sauce could be added to the uh, rice to help with sodium levels, but ginger is a really nice addition in there too. It can just help with digestion and, and uh, sort of soothing the digestion system. Uh, peanut butter and banana sandwiches are great. Um, you know, a smaller serve of peanut butter or, or even a cashew butter. Um, cashews are the, one of the highest containing carbohydrate nuts. Um, bananas give you a really nice dose of potassium, and they also help give you the, the moisture um, to the bread, which can be quite dry if they've been sitting in the pocket of your bite top or whatever for a while. Just want to, again, avoid seedy, grainy breads. Um, the white breads are really easy to absorb. Could add honey uh, to that option as well. You could add honey to the sandwiches or even honey into like a wee blissful combination um, using some dates and some, some nuts and chia seeds, etc. I find blissfuls can be a really good way to help with serving sizes because they're obviously smaller. You can put a couple in a bag, Ziploc bag, um, and have individual serving sizes. The other thing that seems to be quite popular at the moment is things like baby food or making your own baby food. So basically mashed or pureed anything. Um, the sort of the mashing and the pureeing of it makes it really easy to absorb. Um, again, you know, bananas, berries, you might add a little bit of protein powder in there if you're doing a longer session. Um, spinach, pumpkin, sweet potato. Uh, once for an ultra marathon, I've done a, a combination of pumpkin, sweet potato, nutritional yeast, uh, which is a really nice addition to those kind of vegetables, which gives it a, a really nice cheesy flavour, but also adds uh, some extra vitamins in there as well, especially some B vitamins, um, and adds some ginger to that mix as well. Um, then I just put it in a Ziploc bag, um, cut off the, the end or rip the end off with your teeth, um, and away you go. And there are some more kind of commercially available, like a wee baby food pouch thing that you can buy and add your own food to that as well, make your own gel. Um, Again, maybe some normal potatoes, cook them up some salt and mash them up, add a bit of cheese, uh, put them into a Ziploc bag, and away you go. Creamed rice is a really good option as well. Works really well, um, blend it up, or even just straight out of a can. So if you're travelling for a race or travelling for a training session, you can go to a supermarket, buy a can, um, and make them on the go. Uh, so, so one thing I have 
heard about but haven't tried yet, which is surprising for me given my love of coffee, is espresso dates. So basically you soak the dates in water for about half an hour and then you puree them up with some espresso powder. Uh, now it's worth playing around with this, the amount of powder because too much coffee is going to make you need to go to the toilet, uh, which is not what you want. But you can then add some water to that mixture to get them into a, a consistency that you want to use and then again put them into a, a gel pouch or a Ziploc bag type of thing. Um, so like I said at the start, there's so many options. Um, it's really going to come down to what flavours you prefer, whether you want something sweet or something savoury. Most people tend to end up making some sort of savoury uh, snacks for themselves while they're training because there's so many sweet alternatives, especially. Uh, but your dates for kind of mixes, bananas and so forth are going to obviously have some sweetness to them. The limiting feature will become how much you can carry with you. Um, so obviously we're making sandwiches or we're making bliss balls and so forth, and that's a lot more dense to carry than a conventional gel or, or sort of a sports strip mixture in a bottle. So as long as you're getting three good quality meals in a day with a pre-trained snack, then you're going to need to sort of carry less with you if those three or four meals are really dialed in. Um, on those sessions, sort of over that 19-minute to two-hour mark, um, you might start to carry some alternatives um, in that more natural space. Um, but don't turn past the fact that you'll need to prepare for your race with what nutrition you're going to have on race day. So if you're going to use gels in your Ironman, um, you want to make sure you've done some significant training with gels, especially with the consumption of them. So if you're going to take one every half an hour versus one every hour, um, then you need to make sure that your your GI system can handle that. But more than happy to, to do some nutritional um, work with you and some um, a bit of a consultation if you want. Uh, if you want to reach out and throw more details, we can certainly tee that up or just have a chat about it yeah awesome I, I think that's like um for, for for athletes getting into you know starting out for their first endurance race or whatever there's so much marketing around this all all the sport nutrition you know it's a huge industry and at the end of the day i think just take great confidence in knowing that all you are buying essentially is convenience you know it's all at the end of the day it's just carbohydrate sodium protein and and fat or lack of those and it's just a combination of those how they're put together they're in a handy packet they're about the right size and that's essentially all that you are buying is convenience and you can sell save yourself a huge fortune in um going out and either making your own like nick's giving you a lot of options there or just buying everyday options that sort of fit the criteria as well like the creamed rice bananas you know they're all things that you can just readily easily buy that are the, the same thing the other thing that i really like is uh muesli bars obviously not sports specific muesli bars but one thing that i always reach for is the weight watchers muesli bars because with weight watchers they're all about 99 percent fat free so what they do is they take all the fat out of their muesli bars and what do they put in instead carbohydrate which is great for an endurance athlete who's looking for carbohydrate without any fat with minimal protein fast absorption's probably not the best thing to eat if you're looking to uh lose weight but again you get six of them in a box for you know three or four dollars versus you know three or four dollars per bar so again save yourself a small fortune just by eating everyday available food absolutely 
Yeah, the men usually bars, like you said, are, are a fantastic option. They're available in pretty much every supermarket or dairy you're going to come across too. So they can be a bit easier to use on a longer session because you can go and mm. stop in and a place and buy one as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Simon, I hope that helps answer your question. If anyone else there has any questions, send them on through. Head over to exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash ask, as in A-S-K, ask a question and you can leave a voice message over there for us to answer. Remember, every time you ask a question, we're going to send you a free copy of the Performance Temple Handbooks for free for your uh, time and effort putting in to asking that question. If you don't want to hear your uh, voice broadcast over the sound waves of the internet, you can send us through uh, topics you'd like to hear or specific questions uh, over on email or via our social media channels. What we're going to do now is we're going to jump into a little bit of a quick tip around sleep. This is something I've talked to with four or five people over the last couple of weeks. And it's about sleep. And we have talked a lot about sleep previously. Um, just to point you in the, some similar directions where you can go and find some information about sleep. Um, in the Performance Temple Handbook, in the Recovery Book, there's a section about how to maximize your sleep with some easy to implement key things to do. In Episode 2 of the podcast, we talked about protein before sleep. In episode 3, we talked about sleep and injury. In episode 11, we talked about sleep, injury, performance, and weight loss and how sleep affects those things. Uh, in episode 47, we talked around recovery and the importance of sleep. And recently, in episode 69, Nick talked about uh, mindfulness and breathing and how that can be used to help with sleep as well. I also have a video over on YouTube, part of the Whiteboard Wednesday series, about how to get better sleep. So I thought that I had done sleep to death. However, uh, talking with these different people was kind of the same questions or the same sort of approach to it. Um, and so I thought I'd done a good job, but obviously I hadn't because there's still questions out there. And I also myself was personally... Over the last couple of months, things have been really bad. Well, not bad. Things have been really busy, um, and I haven't been sleeping that well. And this is sort of the first time that I've experienced this myself because usually um, I'm just so exhausted that I go to bed uh, and just go to sleep straight away, wake up in the morning. But I've been having troubles going to sleep for one um, and then also waking up a little bit during the night. Um, which is a real pain because our kids have finally started sleeping through the night and now I uh, can't get into a good routine of sleep. So one thing I want to focus on is as soon as people talk about sleep, usually the first thing they talk about uh, or the recommendation is to get more sleep. All right, And everyone knows that you should be getting at least eight hours of sleep or whatever you want to call it, seven and a half hours, so you get five 90-minute sleep cycles or whatever it might be. Today, I don't want to talk at all about getting more sleep because a lot of people are sort of limited in the amount of sleep that they can get, whether that be work, 
whether that be family life, whether that be a combination of the two. So what I wanted to focus on is rather than thinking about getting more sleep, what I want to focus on is maximizing the quality of the sleep you're already getting. So everybody can maximize the sleep of the sleep they're getting following some of these things that I'm going to tell you. But it's a little bit harder sometimes to carve out more time for sleep. So this is not, I'm not going to tell you to get more sleep. All I'm going to tell you is here are some things that we can do to maximize your sleep quality. The first one, the overall picture of getting more quality sleep is about balancing our parasympathetic nervous system and our sympathetic nervous system. And we've talked about both of these on the podcast before. But our parasympathetic nervous system, for those that aren't aware, our parasympathetic nervous system is our resting and digesting nervous system. This is the one we want to increase as much as we can before bed because this is going to help us go to sleep. So our sympathetic nervous system is our fight, flight, or freeze nervous system. This is our adrenaline. This is the thing that's not going to let us go to sleep. It's the thing that's going to get us ready for action. So we want to be able to have to dial that down as much as we possibly can before bedtime. So what can we do? Here are some quick tips for maximizing your sleep quality. I've always already blown out the quick tip section into a long tip, so we better make this last part of it quick. So caffeine. Obviously, caffeine stimulates your sympathetic nervous system. So what we want to do is minimize the amount of caffeine. Exactly how much you need to minimize it or have a little bit of a curfew around your caffeine consumption will depend on how sensitive you are. Some people are going to have a cup of coffee and then fall straight asleep in the chair. Some people are going to have a cup of coffee and not be able to sleep for a week. On one of the latter, I am super sensitive to caffeine. I don't drink coffee. Um, I sort of save my caffeine consumption for strategic times, whether that be racing or whether I've got to get a lot of work done. Um, but for me, if I have caffeine after lunchtime, it, it interrupts with my sleep. So I always say no caffeine after lunch. And this is something I really worked on cracking down on and it's helped my sleep immensely. Not just getting to sleep, but then being disrupted in the night. For those people that are quite uh, used to caffeine or they don't respond as much to caffeine, then something like about no caffeine after three or four o'clock is probably a good rule. The half-life of caffeine is six hours. So by the time you go to bed, you still have a little bit of caffeine in your system, but because you're not very responsive to it, most of it's gone. So caffeine, get it out, have a bit of a curfew on there. Uh, if you're super sensitive, take it out completely or have it real uh, early in the day. Screen time. Hopefully most people are aware that the blue light that's admitted from electronic devices such as laptops, uh, smartphones uh, and TVs, they emit blue light and blue light messes with our sleep hormone melatonin. If you've ever looked through a window in nighttime, uh, I'm not too sure if you should be saying that actually, if you look through someone's window at nighttime and they're sitting there watching the TV, uh, probably don't get caught doing this. <laughs> Pete, you 
get a call up about a stalker. But anyway, if you have a look through a window and someone's in their house watching TV and it's dark, they look blue. And that's because the light that comes out of uh, screens is what's called blue light. And what blue light does is it is actually the signal to your body that it's morning time. In the morning, the light is very blue. And in the evening, what colours the light? It's kind of orange as the sun goes down. So blue light is a signal to the body that, right, we need to wake up, we need to get ready to go. So if you're sitting in front of a, a screen or you've got your smartphone right in front of your face just before you go to bed, your body's getting the signal that it's morning and it's, it's time to go. So what you can do is either minimize the time watching screens in the evening, but that kind of goes against our cultural norms because we sit down and watch TV or watch something on Netflix or scroll through our phone. You can get a blue light filter which puts a kind of an orange-yellowy tinge on your computer screen. You can download them from your app store um, or just Google blue light filter, and that's going to help block some of that blue light. Um, the other thing is, is when you're using a screen, often you're using it to communicate with other people, emails, uh, social media, that sort of thing. So it's not just about the blue light, but also engaging the brain. You go to bed thinking about these things that you need to be doing. So... Cut down on screen time before bed, depending on how sensitive you are as well, somewhere between 30 minutes to two hours. Okay, If you're having real trouble getting to sleep, try switching off those screens really early. Having a pre-sleep routine is really crucial. Pre-sleep routine. If you've ever had uh, a child that you're trying to get to sleep, if you've got a baby, the the Number one thing that all the old wives' tales say is make sure you have a routine and you train it to go to sleep, essentially. Train them, not politically correct to say it anymore. Train them to go to sleep. So you go through the feeding, the bath, the jammies, um, getting the hot water bottle in the bed, reading a story, laying down with them. So they get used to these things are happening. This means I'm about to go to sleep. So we all sort of start to forget that when we get old and wise and we think that we don't need our pre-sleep routine anymore. But getting your body into that mode of, right, I'm about to go to sleep now. This is what I do. I wind down. I, I read a book. I have a shower or whatever it might be. What it does is it dials down the sympathetic nervous system. It turns up that parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system. So get a bit of a pre-sleep routine going and it will help a lot potentially supplementation um, and supplementing with magnesium magnesium has long been connected with sleep and potentially sleep quality it's a pretty low cost supplement out there um, pretty minimal side effects magnesium is involved in something like over 300 different um, reactions in your body um, and a lot of them being the sort of neurotransmission um, of getting sleep happening. So I've started, well, gone back to supplementing with magnesium, something I used to do, um, got some of my Go Healthy magnesium back on uh, back on board, and it seems to be part of the full puzzle, putting it all together. Sleep environment is key, and I talk about this in my YouTube video, but essentially you want to create yourself a cave to sleep in. So what does a cave look like? Well, a cave's dark obviously. 
So your room wants to be really dark. Block out as much light as you can. Um, hopefully there's no screens or little red lights in your room. Good curtains is key, especially as we get into summer here in the southern hemisphere. Summer in the southern hemisphere. And uh, you're going to bed often while the sun is still up um, or trying to sleep while the sun's coming up in the morning. So you want it to be dark. You want it to be cool. Your body doesn't like sleeping in a hot environment because to go to sleep, you've got to drop your core body temperature by about a degree. If, you're, if your body cannot offload heat into the environment around you to cool down, then you're not going to be able to go to sleep. That's why you really struggle to go to sleep when it's really hot. Uh, and it wants to be quiet. Cool, dark, and quiet. Make yourself a cave. It'll help a lot. Two final things, and it's all about dialing up that parasympathetic nervous system, getting yourself into that rested and relaxed state so your body can switch off and go to sleep. Mindfulness, Nick covered it in episode 69, mindfulness, breathing. So focus on ramping up that parasympathetic nervous system through some breathing and some gentle rolling and stretching. Now, just think about the last time you had a massage. You jumped off the table, or you didn't jump off, you sort of slid off the table feeling tired, sleepy. You didn't jump off the table feeling energized and ready to go. No, because if you're rolling and stretching gently, don't go real hard, then it's going to start switching on that parasympathetic nervous system. So it's not just about getting to sleep, because a lot of these things are kind of about getting to sleep, but it's been shown, especially for a lot of like the mindfulness, breathing, the sleep environment, the screen time, the caffeine. It's not about just getting to sleep, but it's about the quality of sleep that you get and the uninterrupted sleep. Because if you're waking up or you're coming out of your sleep cycles, then the quality of your sleep's not quite there. So focus on trying some of these things if you're struggling with sleep, either getting to sleep, waking up uh, throughout the night, or you are waking up and you're still tired, give some of these things a shot. Refer back to all of those other episodes I talked about, and I will post a link to all of those over in the show notes at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 71 for episode 71. See if you can dial up that parasympathetic nervous system a little bit. Dial back the sympathetic nervous system, get some good quality sleep uh, and reap the benefits that sleep gives you in terms of minimizing injury, maximizing performance, maximizing recovery and maximizing weight loss. Who does not want all of those things? So sleep quality, Nick, the very long, quick tip for today. Yes, I probably shouldn't add too much to it then to make it even longer, should I? Uh, any words of wisdom always welcomed. Well, I mean, <clears throat> sleep quality and, and sleep hygiene, so to speak, we could, we could do you know months mm. and months of podcasts on them because there's so many different areas. But two really cool, well, not cool things, but interesting things to touch on is the, the blue light exposure that you're talking about. So in our houses now, we are kind of just riddled with LED light bulbs because they're so much more energy efficient and and better mm. for the environment and so forth, but they emit more blue light than a halogen bulb. So we've kind of created this this 
situation in houses where we've got all these nice light bulbs and, and so forth, but they're emitting more blue light. So being able to kind of get away from that in the, the later stages of the evening, if you've got the ability to dim them, dim them, or even turn them off and just replace it with a small lamp or something, that you can can reduce the total blue light exposure. Um, and one interesting side of thing about like the little red light, think about the one on the TV or even on a microwave, those little lights. So they showed it a study, and I'd have to look it up to find some further details, but a simple exposure by a little red LED on the back of someone's leg, like in behind the kneecap, was enough to disrupt their sleep cycle while they were sleeping. And it's that blows me away every time because I spend a lot of time travelling in motels, and everything's locked, you know, there's lights outside the rooms, there's lights on the TVs, there's microwaves and so forth everywhere. Um, and so it's no wonder that people report having these poor sleeps in motels, obviously you're not in your own bed, but you're also got so much more stimulus going on that you're not even aware of. You think, oh, that little red light's not going to do much, but it's amazing what it can do. So turn everything off that you can, get, you know, get a TV out of your bedroom to start with, it shouldn't even be in there in the first place, but um, turn it off, turn off your, if you've got a, like a charger beside your bed, charging your phone, cover it up with some tape or turn it over, cover it with a, a little bit of a blanket or something that you can to get rid of the light itself. Brilliant. The quick tip on sleep <laughs> quality. So rather than thinking about hours, think about quality first and foremost, and then we can start adding hours onto our sleep when we go from there. Alrighty, team, we're going to wrap it up there for episode 71. Thanks for joining us. I hope you have found the information helpful. The biggest thing now is to go and use this information. So many people just spend so much time consuming information, thinking that that's the thing that's going to make them better by knowing more, by knowing more. However, it's the people that get out there and do they use the information they apply it to themselves they are the ones that improve so get out there and train hard but most importantly train smart we'll talk to you next time mate thanks for listening if you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening. Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart.